Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at the political repercussions behind this weekend's provincial by-elections, which the NDP swept, the BC Conservatives moved up, and BC United remained in the witness protection program when it comes to public awareness. Plus, we look into how an archaic tax policy is pushing Langley's Twilight Drive-In to close. And we speak to a local group searching for a few billionaires who can bring an NBA team back to Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's look at the political fallout here in B.C. after two by-elections that occurred uh, on Saturday night. New Democrats posted victories in by-elections on southern Vancouver Island and here in Vancouver, keeping two seats which were earlier held by former Premier John Horgan and former Cabinet Minister uh, Melanie Mark. Now, Community Activist Joan Phillip won by a large margin in the Vancouver Mount Pleasant constituency. She received almost 68% of the vote. Here is MLA-elect Joan Phillip. We've got a lot of work to do, and uh, I really look forward to getting in there and slugging it out. That was MLA Joan Phillip. Now, Ravi Parmar was elected with 53% of the vote in the southern Vancouver Island riding of Langford Juan de Fuca, which was previously held, as I said, by former Premier John Horgan. Here's MLA-elect Ravi Parmar. This has been an exciting by-election campaign. Uh, I'm honoured to be filling the big shoes left by John Horgan now, and I'm so excited to get to work. So excited for Ravi, but I'm really excited for our community because he is just an outstanding human being, 28 years old, two-term chair of the school board and now about to become the MLA for the fastest growing community in British Columbia. He's an outstanding young man. He's going to be a great MLA. Uh, I think people across British Columbia are going to hear a lot about Ravi Parmar in the days and weeks and years ahead. That, of course, uh, is the voice of former Premier John Horgan. Now, both ridings were considered NDP strongholds, so no surprise there. The real story is who came in second in, in the case of Langford Juan de Fuqua, in some cases, who came in fourth. Uh, joining me now to explain what all this means uh, is Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jess, how are you? I'm good. An interesting uh, set of events. The uh, BC Conservatives came in second uh, in Langford, Juan de Fuca. Uh, the BC United, as I said, came in fourth place. What does this mean in your mind? Yeah, so it could mean quite a lot. Kevin Falcon wants to downplay this, the leader of BC United, but clearly... First off, there's an issue uh, with brand. You and I spoke about this on Friday, that this was a potential result. And now here we are with BC United finishing fourth. People in the riding clearly don't know what BC United is. I spent a lot of time out there in Langford. You could see the party was trying out different signs, some pink, some teal, some black. They were seeing what worked with people. Clearly, none of it really works. Mm -hmm. People just didn't know what that was, BC United. So let's chalk that up for one of the reasons why they finished fourth. And it wasn't even close. They received uh, almost 1,200 votes. The Conservatives were 2,700 votes and the NDP at 7,200 votes. So low turnout, but it wasn't even close. And the other part of this could be that people are looking at that conservative brand and thinking, I like what I'm hearing at a federal level from Pierre Polyevre. Mm-hmm. I don't see that from BC United. I don't know what they stand for. So maybe I want to try something called conservative out at a provincial level as well. Will the conservatives soar to a bunch of victories in next fall's provincial election? Unlikely, but 
this could mean some really significant vote splitting jazz mm-hmm. that could hand the NDP not just some of those swing ridings like in the last provincial election in 2020, but you may even start talking about some other ridings that are in play, which means that you know, Premier David Eby will win that election easily if that's the sort of thing that unfolds with conservative votes. Uh, one would argue Mike Karras also, and we're talking about Langford one, if you could specifically here, uh, you know, the candidate, the conservative candidate in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant was really focusing on culture wars, did not do very yeah. well at all. I mean, we basically dismissed by urban voters, to be very blunt. But in the case of Mike Harris and Langford Juan de Fuca, he came across as, dare I say, a progressive conservative. Uh, the economy, uh, smaller government, all those things that, you know, uh, suburban voters care about. And, and let's say, let's be honest, as you said, the conservatives do well in those suburban writings when it comes to a federal election uh, as well. Um, so his was a very mainstream one, would argue, mainstream. Uh, platform that he was that he was fighting on. Uh, this now, right now, we have a provincial election scheduled for 2024, the fall of 2024. Can if it is an issue of name recognition, can BC United course correct in a year when it comes to name recognition? Is that enough time to rebrand a party? We keep talking about rebranding. Rebranding yeah. also means spending a lot of dollars for advertising, marketing, all those kind of things. Do they are they able to do that in a year? Yeah, so we've seen some of these rebrands in other provinces, but largely they come from parties that have, you know, natural governing ability in terms of in uh, Alberta, like that changing of the name was to unite the Conservative Party, blowing up the wild rose and bringing those uh, center-right voters all with them. Uh, In Saskatchewan, the switch to the Saskatchewan party was at a time where the NDP was struggling in that province, and we saw success there. We've never seen this type of change of name uh, in British Columbia in modern times. And it is harder and harder to get information to people outside of election cycles where, yes, they're tuning into your show and watching television and reading the news, but there are a lot of people that aren't in tune uh, with these name changes and this conversation that's happening every day. And those are the voters that Kevin Falcon needs to reach, and they're becoming harder and harder to reach with unless they're going to spend a huge amount of money, as you described, buying ads, uh, getting out there into the community. And and that is a long, drawn-out process. And then, you know, even once you get to the name, you need to convince people that it's that product that they want, that it's not just the BC Liberals. It's about what is BC United? What makes them different? If you have a different name, how are you different? And then voters need to process that through their head. All of that is hard, you know. You've experienced it on the doorstep, right, Jazz? You meet mm-hmm. voters who say they have voted the same way their entire life. They are tied to that brand. When you move away from that, it becomes harder to say, oh, I've always voted for this type of party, so I'm going to continue on with BC United. It's it's a real challenge, and I think one that Kevin Falcon and his team have underestimated here. They had the option, Jazz, to put BC Liberal in brackets on the ballot. They decided not to. They're, they were worried the Liberal brand was going to hurt them I'm not so sure that's the case. I know you and I have had that conversation a number of times. I know you agree with me on that point. So I think it was risky what they're doing, and they're now paying the price for that, and we'll see if it bears out when we get to the next general. So I want to clear this up, though. You're saying they had the option to put in, well, obviously, BC United, but in brackets, BC Liberals, so people yeah. wouldn't be and, – and they turned it down. They turned it down. Elections BC oh, gave oh, them oh. that option, that they could have kept it on the ballot, that it would have said – 
BC United in brackets, BC Liberal. They're still they own that right to that party name. Mm-hmm. It's still the same party in the mind of elections BC, and they turned down. Uh, the option of doing that because they didn't want that association with the liberal brand. Well, that's called an own goal. That's what's that's what that's called. My well, one, is- of the, one of the best best jokes I heard this weekend was that uh, I was with former Premier John Horgan, and he said, "After these results, does it mean that BC United gets relegated?" <laughs> <laughs> if he has follows soccer or uh, football, that that just means being downgraded. That's for sure. We are speaking to Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. We are talking about uh, this past weekend's two by elections, which are both uh, um, in ridings that the NDP has done well in. The both ridings the NDP swept. They are strongholds for the NDP, uh, but it's not really the story of from this weekend. The real story is how uh, well the BC Conservatives did. Now, second place uh, in Langford, Juan de Fuca, in the case of BC United, formerly BC Liberals, in fourth place. And what does this all mean? Give me a call on the open line, 604-280-9898. That's 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, Richard, one of the questions I did have for you, what do you think this does mean, part of the break, we was talking about in regards to Mr. Falcon and BC United with this, with the number four uh, outcome in Langford Juan de Fuca. What do you think this means in regards to attracting good candidates, fundraising, even credibility with one's caucus? Because that caucus is still very rural at the end of the day, and they view these threats from BC Conservatives in a, in a serious manner. What do you think this all means over the next couple of months for Mr. Falcon? Yeah, I think there's going to be a panic button going off from those uh, rural riding. Uh, BC United MLAs saying they are worried about their livelihoods if the Conservatives are able to take this momentum and turn it in potentially uh, to seats. I asked uh, Kevin Falcon today when I spoke to him about that issue of fundraising and candidate recruitment. He says their fundraising has been really strong, but a result like this There's no way it can help. And in terms of candidate recruitment, he promised that there would be a list of strong candidates in all 93 ridings in the province. But again, you watch a candidate like Elena Lawson in Langford, Juan de Fuca. She was an autism advocate. She was getting her feet under her in her first campaign. Uh, And then to be handed a fourth place finish is tough. And others in her situation may look at this and say, I don't want to get into politics if it means getting drubbed at the ballot box and having to go, you know, to my kid's school and people reminding me that I finished in fourth place in an election. It makes it a lot harder to appeal to especially people who are new to politics to get into it Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a result like this. And a high profile candidates as well. When you think, look, it's going to be that much harder because not only am I fighting my opponent or opponents, I'm fighting a potential brand or, or lack of visibility when it comes to that particular brand uh, uh, as well. Uh, give us a call on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jazz. Good afternoon. Um, you know, as for Mr. Falcon there and the, the BC United Liberals, I call them, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. I'm thinking he regrets changing that name, but that's fine because you're talking to a guy that used to vote NDP for years. And you know who I vote for now? I vote for the BC Conservative Party, and that's who I'm a member of. Why? And what changed why, your mind? Yeah. Because, why am I a member of the BC Conservatives? Well, there's, I could go on for a long time, Jess, but <laughs> I'll tell you right now, one thing that really irked me was the way John Horgan called that election during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, some people may not have issues with that, but I do. We were all told to stay home. He called the election because he, was, he wanted the power. I'm sorry, Adrian Dix as a health minister, we had 800-some we had people die during that. He neglected the ambulance file for years. 
He wasn't in power for, you know, for, you know, three, four weeks here. He was in power for over four years before finally something was done. And we ended up with this. We had 600 some people die directly from heat. You know, there's things that they say. My, my mom's in long term care, for example. I have to I'm called to bring a fan in and we have an NDP government that is busy handing out e-bike rebate instead of calling for long-term care homes to be be mandatory to have air conditioning, for God's sake. These are things that are very annoying to me. And their drug policy, the NDP, oh, we want to be the first in the country to decriminalize small amounts of drugs. Well, that I do not believe in. I think there actually should be a stigma with drugs. Yeah, Rob, uh, it's uh, not I, a good idea. I, I got, Rob, I got what you're saying in regards to what, what you're not happy with, but in regards to BC Conservatives and BC United, in the perfect world, BC United would like to believe they're a coalition of Conservatives and Federal Liberals, and, and when they are working well together, two-thirds out of the last 70 years, we've had a free enterprise. Oh, we've lost, uh, just notice we've lost Rob. But uh, Richard here, when, when that coalition is working, uh, when you have uh, the the um, Federal Conservatives and Federal Liberals in a free enterprise coalition working together, that works. Do you think this coalition now is just permanently just broken right now or temporarily broken and just it's going to take a while before they get back together? Yeah, I I think there's a permanency to some of this, that there are some conservative voters who said that they believe that BC United is moving too close to the centre. And with that, they are worried about the policy shifts. But the reality is to govern in British Columbia, you need to move to the centre. And it's about... Uh, threading that needle, and it is incredibly hard to do. And the early returns are this is going to be a challenge for Kevin Falk. And I, I spoke to Aaron Gunn earlier today. You'll see him on the news hour tonight. Uh, he's a conservative filmmaker. Uh, some of his films have been viewed over a million times around uh, the toxic drug crisis. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, what he is saying is that there is a group out there of conservatives, many of them in British Columbia, who don't feel listened to by BC United. They don't feel that Kevin Falcon hears their concerns and issues. And it's that group that is willing to move to the conservatives. And it's it's going to create a situation of vote splitting that had an impact last election and very well could have an impact in the next election. And it's just that this group of people that just feel that the mainstream parties don't listen to them. And, and that may be that sense we got from Rob who just called in as well as that, that those parties, the NDP and the, the BC United just aren't listening to their concerns. Yeah. I mean, to jump from uh, NDP to BC conservatives, that's quite the jump. I've got 10 seconds. Is the NDP or there's going to be pressure on EB to call an early election from some of his advisors on this, just because of the poor uh, returns in, in Langford one to Yes, but his number one advisor, his wife Kaylee, yeah. is insistent there will not be an early election. And so I don't believe there will be because he has so much he wants to accomplish. And if that number one advisor says don't go, I don't think he'll go. <laughs> there you go. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jess. I'm not sure if uh, you watched a lot of TV over the weekend or, or read um, the news and kept up with events in Russia, but it was quite an eventful uh, 48 hours uh, in that country. And today, Wagner uh, mercenary chief uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, resurfaced uh, for the first time since uh, his mutiny on Saturday. Um, And today he declared that his motive was to save his private militia from being taken over by the Russian military, not to topple President Vladimir Putin. Now, whatever his intentions, Prigozhin's brazen revolt uh, confronted Putin with his fiercest challenge as he was faced uh, with more in more than 20 years as Russia's supreme leader. So a significant 
uh, pushback and challenge to Mr. Putin. It also, many would argue, laid bare the bitter divisions um, over Mr. Putin's handling of the war in Ukraine, and many have said could have serious repercussions uh, on the battlefield um, as well. Uh, here's a report from France 24 in regards to what's transpired over the last 48 hours uh, in Russia. To a chorus of cheers and rounds of applause, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group Evgeny Prigozhin bids the residents of Rostov-on-Den goodbye. His departure marks an end to a dramatic standoff that saw the Wagner group seize the southern city that is a military hub for the Russian army. It's another U-turn for Prigozhin. Earlier, just hours after announcing a march on Moscow, the Wagner boss ordered his troops abandon the assault. We on June 23rd, we left for the Justice March. In 24 hours, we made all this progress. We are 200 kilometers from Moscow. Understanding the risk that Russian blood could be shed on either side, our men are turning back the other way and returning to the temporary base camps, according to plan. The 180 could be thanks to Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. His office claims he negotiated a deal with the Wagner boss, who then agreed to halt his troops' advance. Lukashenko's close ally, Russian President Vladimir Putin, has praised the leader for his apparent efforts. The announcement marks a de-escalation in a crisis that many feared could spiral into a devastating conflict between the Russian army and Prigozhin's forces. In an address to the nation, Russian President Vladimir Putin described the Wagner Group's actions as a stab in the back to Russia. All those who deliberately embarked on the path of betrayal, who prepared an armed rebellion, embarked on the path of blackmail and terrorist methods, will suffer inevitable punishment, will answer both before the law and before our people. That was uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and, of course, that report was prepared by France 24. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about the repercussions of what transpired over the last 48 hours is Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Mr. Kolga, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Jack. Uh, a lot uh, has transpired uh, over the weekend when it comes to um, Russia, Vladimir Putin, Evgeny uh, Prigozhin, um, the head of the Wagner uh, Group. Uh, what are your main takeaways from this weekend? Well, uh, Vladimir Putin's own power is much uh, diminished. Um, he is looking more vulnerable than he has at any other time uh, over the past 23 years that he has been in power. Um, Russia is clearly a nation that is divided. Its elite are divided. Um, and, uh, and I think that Russia in general is looking much weaker uh, than we have seen it uh, in, in the past, uh, over the past months. And so... Um, you know, I, I think that the Western world needs to be prepared um, for what will inevitably come. You know, what we saw over the weekend is pretty much a, a preview, a dress rehearsal for what is going to happen at some point in the coming weeks and, and months. Russia is going to see, uh, there's going to be political turmoil, there is going to be a change. But we should also be uh, very careful because uh, Vladimir Putin right now um, is a, a, a cornered rat, so to speak. Um, he is feeling uh, that he is vulnerable. Um, right now, there are there have been reports now and over the past couple of days that uh, uh, in, with regards to the war in Ukraine, uh, Russian troops have 
placed uh, uh, explosives in the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. This is the largest power plant in Europe. Uh, and there's real concern. Even uh, President Zelensky, Ukraine's president, has warned that there could be a, a nuclear catastrophe waiting to happen there. So we need to be uh, very alert as to what is happening both in Ukraine and in Moscow at the moment, because the situation is extremely tenuous uh, at this moment. Uh, I just want to uh, just step back for a moment. You referred to uh, Mr. Putin as a as a cornered rat. One would argue uh, rats are most dangerous when they're cornered. Um, do you believe he has the full support of his inner circle or at least the positions of power and authority to keep hold of power? Uh, or is this really beyond Mr. Prigozhin's action this weekend and Wagner Group's actions, but in his own inner circle, is he worried now? Uh, he has to be worried. Uh, we know that on Saturday, the oligarchs, the kleptocrats that have been supporting him uh, for the past 23 years, keeping him in power, um, most of them fled Moscow. They flew to places like Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia, Turkey. Um, we know that there are also cracks appearing within the inner circle amongst the elite. Um, and of course, you know, Vladimir Putin has relied on this um, facade of uh, being Russia's strongman, the only Russian leader who can protect the Russian people um, from the evils of NATO and Ukraine and such. And that facade has been irreparably damaged now. Uh, there is no going back to um, who he appeared to be in the eyes of the Russian people and even the elites uh, last week. Um, he is uh, clearly, uh, again, vulnerable. And uh, there's no doubt that the elites in Moscow um, are thinking about ways to um, ha make a change happen uh, politically at the, in, at the top of, of Russia's leadership. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin has been in this war now for, for 16 months. Um, he has very little to show for it other than uh, tens of thousands of dead Russian soldiers, uh, an economy that is teetering on the brink of collapse. Um, the situation in Russia itself is, is quite dire. Um, there are uh, major problems in the regions. Uh, there, one in three hospitals don't have running water. Um, the Russian people are starting to become aware of this, um, and they are no longer going to be uh, placated by these images of, of war. So, um, you know, the Russian elite knows, know this, the oligarchs know this. I think that Russian military commanders know this, and certainly People like Evgeny Prigozhin realize this as well. And so, yeah, the, the threat to Vladimir Putin uh, is quite real right now. I think there's most of us uh, in the West here would love to see Vladimir Putin gone. But when a strong man like that leaves after two decades in power, that leaves a huge vacuum uh, as well. What kind of things should we in the West be considering in regards to stability if Putin does go? Well, that's a great question, Jazz. Uh, look, the... There's no guarantee that the next leader, Russian leader, will be a liberal, will be a Democrat whose, uh, whose uh, worldviews and values align with ours. Um, you know, we saw just this weekend the type of person who might come to power in Russia. Um, Evgeny Prigozhin is an ex-convict. Um, his forces are accused of engaging in mass atrocities in Africa, uh, in Syria, in, in Ukraine as well. Um, this guy is anything but a uh, Democrat. He's a savage. 
And it's someone like that who could come to power. Uh, and we saw how close he did come to power on Saturday. Um, I would guess that had he continued his march onto Moscow, he would have be, he would have been in the Kremlin today. Um, and so that's the kind of leader that may come to power in the future. And we need to be fully prepared um, for that eventuality. Now, will that last forever? Probably not. Um, if someone else like Yevgeny Prigozhin were to become president of Russia, I think there will be a, uh, an extended period of instability inside of Russia. Uh, it will be bloody. It will be messy. But I do believe that the Russian people will eventually stand up and, and will say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the Western world, what they need to be doing right now is doubling down on their support. Uh, for Russian independent civil society, the opposition, Russian independent media, so that when that time comes, and that time will come, but when that time comes, that those uh, pro-democracy Russians, they have the tools and resources necessary to do what's needed in that transition. They can identify those opportunities and, and hopefully eventually come to power, because it's only with a democratic Russia that we will have true peace in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, with the billions and billions of dollars that have uh, flooded into Russia over the last two and a half decades in regards to energy prices, they have uh, been fueling Europe for a very long time. They have uh, deals with China as well, a fast-growing economy over the last two decades. Um, and so there's lots of dollars there. Uh, but yet yep. when you look at their system, when you look at their military bogged down in, in the Ukraine, you see this this one individual with a mercenary army potentially could have taken over the government. Why is Russia so weak? Uh, well, Russia is so weak because there is one person running the show and one person who's benefiting from anything. It's a mafia state. Um, and... Uh, all of that money that's flowed from those regions of Russia, those very impoverished regions of Russia, has been done on the backs of those people that live in the region. They're not benefiting from this, um, especially the indigenous people in, in, uh, in Russia. And all of this is built on, on their backs. They are not seeing any of that, uh, any of that, uh, of that, the wealth that's being generated by Russian resources. Uh, a lot of that money, uh, when it flows into centers like Moscow and St. Petersburg, it flows into the pockets of these oligarchs who have really amassed all of this wealth. Um, you know, my friend Bill Browder says that uh, up to 50% of those revenues goes, go directly to Vladimir Putin, making him probably the richest man on earth right now. Uh, and again, it doesn't go to the Russian people. And when it goes into the coffers of these oligarchs, it, it goes offshore. It goes into places in your, it used to, not anymore, because we've, put, we've placed restrictions on the, on the movement of capital. But uh, it, it would be placed in places like, uh, like Europe. Um, Roman Abramovich, one of the wealthiest uh, Russian oligarchs uh, who's on our sanctions list, used to own a Chelsea football club. He has billions of dollars invested here, right here in Canada, in Evraz Steel, which, uh, which he and his uh, colleagues own. Um, and that's where this money... Is, uh, is hidden away. And unfortunately, the Russian people uh, have seen no benefit from the billions, trillions of dollars in revenue that are being generated from, from Russian resources. And, and I believe that it's, it, it'll only, they'll only see that benefit when there is a, a change in government, where you have uh, a Democrat uh, who respects the rule of law uh, running that country. 
Uh, Mr. Kolga, thank you so much for your time. They really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Let's talk a little bit about heritage businesses. I'm talking about uh, those businesses that are part of our community that have been there for many, many generations. Think of perhaps of a a Filipino grocery store or a restaurant that uh, is popular amongst uh, the Indian, Chinese, Italian communities uh, here um, in Vancouver. They become the fabric of our community, a cornerstone in many cases. But what is also happening, and it's not just Vancouver, but many other communities uh, around North America, when you have a very frenzied uh, real estate market, a busy real estate market where things are torn down depending on interest rates and all those types of things, those types of businesses can be forced out simply because that land is just too valuable. It can be redeveloped. Um, in a recent article in the Vancouver Sun, there was talk about a program in San Francisco uh, where that community is trying to save uh, many uh, heritage businesses. It's a challenge uh, to do the same here in Vancouver, legacy businesses that are part and parcel of our uh, community. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about saving heritage businesses and particularly a conversation that is um, important in the Filipino community. Joining me now to talk a little bit about those heritage businesses in this case, specifically around the Joyce Collingwood area, is R.J. Aquino. He's director of the Tulian uh, Filipino Diaspora Society and chair of Filipino BC. Mr. Aquino, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Oh, Now, walk me through a little bit about the challenges that were there before the community, specifically around uh, Joyce Collingwood. What was there um, and why is it important for, in this case, I mean, for all the community, but in this case for the Filipino community specifically? Yeah, um, well, I'd say for the past couple of decades, at least um, when, when I was when I first moved to Joyce Collingwood, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's been a lot of restaurants and businesses that have catered specifically to the Filipino community, Filipino restaurants, Filipino grocery stores, um, and it, it, it's it's unique in that there's a, in this one building, there's three Filipino restaurants in a row, um, and I mean despite the number of restaurants. Uh, it, it's still really busy. It's uh, heavily frequented by uh, not just people within the neighborhood, but Filipinos across the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. Given its proximity, or you know, beside uh, the SkyTrain station, mm-hmm. there's so many people that stop, uh, at, you know, on their way to work, coming home from work, they they stop by Joyce and uh, frequent these restaurants, and uh, it's it's such a big part of their routine and 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 very much a big part of uh, that neighborhood. Now, there was a recent story in the Vancouver Sun by uh, Dan Fumano in regards to heritage businesses. So there was a threat to these uh, restaurants um, because of redevelopment? Yeah. Um, just a little bit before the pandemic hit and we had all that lockdown uh, happening, um, there was a, a rezoning or a rede- redevelopment board that came up um, indicating that the, uh, the, the the property was about to get rezoned and redeveloped, which means that those businesses would soon be moving out. Um, and my wife and I discovered that on our way to uh, pick up our son from daycare, and our hearts just sank. Um, and we felt disappointed, we felt sad, we felt angry, and we soon discovered that a lot of people um, felt the same way. And uh, going in there and talking to the business owners and and and, and then feeling uh, kind of the frustration about like not knowing uh, what the future holds for them and their businesses and mm-hmm. I mean it, it, it's really it was it was a really disappointing time and um, what's I would say it's you know like 
what's really special about it is that even though they were worried about their businesses, they were even more worried about their customers because they saw the value of that space having for, um, you know, their their customers and the people that frequent these businesses and seeing it as like their third place, Mm -hmm. um, a place that they visit between, yeah, home and the workplaces. Now, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong if I'm pronouncing these properly. The restaurants in question are Comares, uh, Pampangas, and uh, Plato Filipino. Uh, yes. That's that's part of the, the, the you know popular among the community. Now, according to the article, the development had stalled uh, and is dormant at the moment, but there may be another attempt to rezone it potentially. Um, do you think there's enough in place in regards to bylaws and desire? Uh, to protect some of these heritage uh, businesses, neighborhoods uh, in within City Hall, or do you think more needs to be done? Uh, I mean, we feel that more needs to be done. I mean, it's it's there's just uh, now constant anxiety. Um, it, it's it's the, it's the same feeling that I would say many renters in our city feel mm-hmm. that at any moment, um, you know, the property owner or the landlord could. Evict you, um, and more or less, uh, and it's it's really it's taking a toll on people's peace of mind. Um, and I applaud the effort, or applaud the efforts across uh, North America. You mentioned that San Francisco has um, a program that they're trying out. Uh, I know Councillor Boyle has actually we've spoken to her quite frequently about this issue, and she's um, been a, a huge advocate and supporter for finding a solution for this, but. We recognize there's development pressure in the neighborhood. There's a lot of developments popping up in in, uh, in the area, mm-hmm. and we don't want those developments to come at the cost of these and these cultural assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what would you say to the argument? And I know each community is very different in regards to size and regards to how long they've been in Canada. Uh, you know, we have the Punjabi market at Maine and 40 my, 49th. Uh, you have um, Chinatown, of course, part of the fabric of the city of Vancouver. Um, one could argue those commun- those neighborhoods, very important to the communities and culture, particularly Chinatown, the challenge they face isn't necessarily just the challenges that are within Vancouver. They also have a challenge that if you are of Indian heritage and you used to go to Punjabi Market, you will more likely now go to Surrey simply because there's plenty of stores that cater to your needs within a small vicinity. You could add Richmond to that or even Abbotsford because you have a sizable South Asian population. In uh, regards to the Chinese community, you probably would like to go to air-conditioned shopping malls along Number 3 Road in Richmond because everything you need is probably there as well. Part of it, I would argue, is, is probably within the community as well. And I'm using uh, South Asians and Chinese as an example. The Filipino community a little smaller in size, but growing very quickly, as we all know. Um, mm-hmm. I guess there has to be some sort of a healthy balance here because as much as you want to preserve a neighborhood, and it's very important, there are just trends and demographics that also drive change that sometimes you can't stop. You're right. Um, I mean, that's definitely a trend that we're seeing, but these are also kind of the same trends that we're seeing driving families out of Vancouver because it's, it's turning into a uh, such an affordable place to live. You know, these trends, um, and like uh, let's use Punjabi market as an example. I remember when I first moved to Canada that it was, there were a lot more um, South Asian businesses there. And, you know, whatever factors came into play in terms of the, the, the reduction of, of businesses there, I mean, it's, people will go where the businesses are, but then there's a reason why those businesses had left. And there's a number of them do 
come from the fact that it is more expensive to uh, to to have your businesses in Vancouver. It's also again you're running the risk of um, finding a new location if your current location is uh, rezoned and redeveloped. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the solutions we need to find. It's that we 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 do have communities that are resilient and will continue to uh, find ways to frequent and and patronize these. Uh, establishments, but um, why are we, you know, allowing those changes to impact what's already uh, a good thing that's in place? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Aquino, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on again because it's not an issue that's going to go away, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tried to go with the fadeaway. The ball slapped out of his hands, but Park saves it. Back out to Dickerson. Thought about a three. Gives to Bibby. All alone on the baseline. Good. The three-pointer. Bibby dies for it. Now Dickerson's got it. Brings it up court. Looks right. Here comes Sharif. Sharif with a can opener jam. Oh, the big old smile at the crowd. He's been adopted by Vancouver. This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. You were listening to some of the sounds of the early days of the Vancouver Grizzlies. In fact, uh, March 26th, 2001 was the date uh, it was announced the Vancouver Grizzlies were leaving Vancouver. Their owner at the time sold the team, or had bought the team originally for $160 million. Uh, Since then, of course, prices have increased significantly. (laughs) You could probably add a zero to that for sure. But there's never, no doubt in my mind, there's been an incredible desire to bring professional basketball, NBA basketball, uh, back to Vancouver. Well, joining me now are two uh, gentlemen who would love to see that happen and are doing their best to encourage that as well. Uh, David Trombley is managing director for uh, Vancouver ad- advertising firm Zulu Alpha Kilo, and Jeff Martini is founder of Van City Original. David, Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you having so much. Us. I was really looking forward to this conversation. I always talk to lots of politicians and, uh, you know, all the serious stuff in the world that you should be talking about. We were talking about Ukraine and Russia today. I was really excited about this conversation. I got a little you know, bit lighter, eh? Yeah, a little bit lighter, but I'm a big basketball. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a huge basketball fan as well. Well, David, uh, let's start with you first and foremost. Um, your organization, uh, your firm, and, and you as well, want to attract investors to bring a team here. Tell me why you're doing this, first of all. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, great question, and thank you again for uh, having us on air. The it started with uh, our agency opening about a year ago now. Um, you know, we've been operating out here for some time, and we wanted to find a like-minded partner like Jeff, who felt very passionately about something that we believed in, and to contribute something to the city of Vancouver. And in this instance, it really felt like something that was very clear and absent was the basketball team. And as someone who lived here uh, back in the '90s, I remember the Grizzlies very well. And it just really felt like an opportunity to just start a conversation. I mean, there's so much passion in the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. The population has got to be over a million since uh, we last had the Grizzlies yeah. team. And, and you can just hear it and see it on the streets. People miss basketball. Yeah, it's interesting. I, think, I was thinking back to the mid-90s, my reporting time. We were population about 1.6, 1. Yep. 1.7 yep. million. We're at 2.7 million now. 
uh, with another half a million coming to Canada in by 2025, but a fifth of that usually ends yep. up uh, in British Columbia, and the majority of that ends up in Vancouver, so the population isn't getting any it, smaller, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. So it is growing. Now, uh, Jeff, your involvement, uh, I, I love your story because I walk by it Thank every you. day uh, <laughs> after the show and before the show as well, and I actually bought a Van City t-shirt uh, at the Vancouver Bandits game, my first game to, to that organization. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So what's your involvement? Well, they uh, they contacted me, I guess, like uh, David said, uh, they felt I would be a, a like-minded uh, uh, person. It's uh, it's a great thing. It's our 25th anniversary of the Vancey original brand, so uh, we've been actually looking for people to partner up with to just kind of do cool things, and uh, this mm-hmm. this came uh, this opportunity came out, so uh, it's great. We've always had a, a lot of involvement in basketball. We've as you, you said, you just bought a, one of our collaboration uh, shirts uh, we did with the, the Vancouver Bandits, the newly branded. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done uh, a few different collections with the uh, NBA, bringing uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies back as the Van City Grizzlies mm-hmm. and stuff. So uh, it, was, it was a good fit. And, uh, and you know, we, we love the thought of, uh, of bringing awareness. Obviously, Cat, uh, who's done... Uh, Finding Big Country and uh, yeah. and uh, and the Grizzly Truth uh, is a is a good friend and we've worked together to promote each other and stuff. So she's doing that and and this. So we're just hoping to bring some awareness uh, and uh, and and get people talking about it and and hype it up. Yeah, you know? and I mean you know uh, we we're probably both all creatures of the 1990s to a certain degree, yeah. but since then things have changed as well. As I said, uh, the Grizzlies uh, were purchased uh, uh, for 160 million dollars. Uh, and today, if you look at the news, the last probably month or so, two months, yep. uh, Michael Jordan, uh, the owner of, owner of the uh, Charlotte Hornets, which is a small market team, uh, mm-hmm. sold for about $3 billion, uh, yeah. which is he's the majority owner. Uh, Phoenix Suns, I think, was sold for $4 billion. So the numbers uh, are very different <laughs> than what they were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> back in the 1990s. So uh, in regards to the excitement and energy, how would you go about trying to find some investors or maybe one big investor, but how would you go about doing that? Yeah, good question. Um, We've been reaching out to a lot of people. In fact, this weekend, uh, maybe the timing was a little poor, but we reached out to Ryan Reynolds uh, to see what his level of interest is, but I think he's got his eyes set on F1, if I'm I'm not mistaken, right? (laughs) That's right. Um, But no, you know, it's also, you know, whether it be a a Chip Wilson or the... um, uh, it could be uh, G- Jimmy Patterson. It could be the Aquilini family. I mean, what we're really interested in here is starting a serious conversation and getting the like-minded people to really join a movement. And if we can get those kinds of people talking and if we can get a, whether it be a Ryan Reynolds or a Seth Rogen or someone to help uh, really draw some attention to it, then we start putting those people into discussions and mm-hmm. have their people go with it. And that's why we came up with the $200 million jersey. I mean, we need 15 of them, but we'll start with one. And I guess that's <laughs> that's part of it. You're right. I mean, it, 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 the, the price for these franchises have gotten so big. The, the NBA, to my understanding, is now allowing even... Uh, sovereign wealth funds or some sort of uh, yep. equity firms to, to purchase teams, or at least 20% of it, I yep. believe, yep. in the NBA case. I guess that would be one other way to go as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're starting with trying to get it from the grassroots for Vancouver by the people of Vancouver. And then if anyone wants to join in and help it make it real, then mm-hmm. we're all ears. Yeah, I just uh, want to create a bit of a buzz. Yeah, well, I think you, know, you get, are doing that. I mean, talking, so. what do you think is the allure of basketball here in the city? Like last time and this time, what's the difference in your mind, Jeff? Well, like you said, there's uh, there's a, a much uh, bigger population. 
to draw from for uh, for a fan base. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I think I mean there's been such growth in the NBA and uh, and just with uh, CEBL our Van- Vancouver Bandits and yeah. and stuff. I just I think uh, the basketball uh, as a sport is is continually growing and and stuff and I think Vancouver would would love to see a team come back yeah I think you're right you know one of the things I've noticed my son plays it he's 14 but just the uh, proliferation of basketball academies Mm. now uh, in uh, this city it it just boggles the mind and I guess part of it is basketball like soccer and a few sports is doesn't cost a lot of money no, to play, low, right? Low level of entry. Yeah, it's sport not like hockey or, yeah. or something like well, that, as, where you've got to invest yeah. a couple grand just to get on the ice. You know, as a former hockey dad, not having to get up in the morning, <laughs> and, and it is it is the entry point for people is tougher, right? Sure. And uh, Squire Barnes and I were talking about this. It's it's the point of even the land prices, meaning you're not building many hockey arenas, right? So we're all yep. fighting for time. That's yep. that five a.m. practice or the eleven thirty game that sometimes yep. those involved in beer leagues have to do. You generally don't have that challenge, but uh, yeah. but I guess the challenge more than anything um, is just finding the right folks who can put the money down to do that. Is there any conversation about maybe um, you know investors from outside of Canada that may love basketball may still want to invest in a team uh, here? Like you, you talk about, you know, we've got a huge, huge Asian population that just loves yep. basketball. When I lived in China, the amount of billboards I saw with NBA stars throughout China, not just Beijing or Shanghai, but throughout China, it's mm-hmm. it's a hugely popular sport, you know, and, and so that would be one place to look to out. Yeah. And you, I guess it's just more investors from China and places like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're open about just about any way we can start it. I think the hope, though, would ultimately be it is a team for Vancouver by Vancouver. I think, yeah. the, I mean, you know, we can we don't want to be too picky in this moment here, but what the the dream scenario when we sat down with Jeff and sort of mapped this out as the, the agency and uh, and city originals was that anything that can be authentic to this city yeah. and have that kind of grassroots level of support is really where we want to be. So if that happens to take a little bit of overseas support and help, I don't think we're going to be too choosy in this moment. But, well, I was just uh, reading that uh, I think the NBA there was one team where there was going to there was some Saudi money. Now yep. I could you can say look Saudi Arabia I don't want to do that. We just had this conversation about golf. I get that, uh, but if, if it is some investment, that's probably one area you want to look at because it's just the hardest part is you got to remind yourself mm-hmm. it's a three billion dollars for Charlotte Hornets, which is a small market team, right? Yeah, that's a low end. Yeah, it's a low end, <laughs> and considering the Ottawa Senators, I think sold for a billion, yeah. right? Yeah. So it yep. gives you. The <laughs> We're talking about, uh, and considering the Giants, the Vancouver, sorry, Vancouver Grizzlies were 161 yeah, million. Yeah, steal. It, it was a steal. <laughs> you still, if they still you, are around, the the uh, the appreciation on your investment would be pretty nice well, on that one. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, okay. and you make a good point, but we really do feel there's enough capital locally. If you go around the Lower Mainland, I think that if you can galvanize that sort of interest and really make it something that's going to be meaningful. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of you know, I, I'm taking a page here from Wrexham, and this would be a little bit bigger, I would hope, but. Um, when you start, I mean, the Seattle uh, soccer team and um, MLSE has done a phenomenal job, the Sounders, about when the whole team in the city rallies behind them, it's almost like ownership. And yeah. imagine a Green Bay Packers story out in Vancouver, how cool that would be. Yeah, I mean, I've gone to a Seattle Sounders uh, game against Portland. Yeah. My God, it's like you're in you're in England. Like yeah. they are just yeah. really just dedicated, right? Those and are those city based teams that just they own that franchise, and that's the almost the best place. And they took that from Green Bay. Same idea, just really like the city 
embraces them, right? And embraces, good morning. Well, uh, uh, well, I would also argue they have an open-air uh, uh, arena as <laughs> yes. well. That helps as well. But we were offered that by a private investor many years ago, and for some reason we said no to that. So <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was our choice. But this, people always say this isn't a sports town. I would disagree. It is a sports town. Agreed. As, and especially now, maybe a little too early for the Grizzlies then, and, and I, I congratulate Arthur Griffiths for bringing them here. Um, but I still think this is a sports town. I think I think if you market it right, play it right, especially for the NBA, which has got that cool yeah. factor more than any other league, I think. I, right? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you look at what the Raptors do on an exhibition game when they're out here. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. That that team is the so far currently the heart and soul of Canadian basketball. Yeah. There's no reason they should be the only answer, though. I think Vancouver is beyond prime to be able to represent and do a fantastic job at really pitching what basketball could look like in a whole different level. I think expansion franchises, once upon a time, we all know used to be a bit of a joke. If you go back to some of the NHL teams, look what the Vegas Golden Knights have just done most recently. That's a four-year franchise. That's all of a sudden the best team in hockey. Seattle's doing well uh, as well. Seattle's doing fantastic. Yep. So there you go. Well, David, Jeff, uh, good luck to you both. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks and we'll us. check in with you guys once in a while as well. Love to Appreciate do that. that. We'd love to Thanks check guys. back in. All right. Thank that you so is, much. Uh, thank you. That is David Trombley, Managing Director for Vancouver Advertising Firm Zulu Alpha Kilo, and Jeff Martini, founder of Van City Original. Uh, they're behind a group that wants to uh, encourage as many local investors to bring an NBA team back to Vancouver. Now, recently you've probably heard that Langley's Twilight Drive-In Theatre, the last of its kind in Metro Vancouver, uh, would uh, be shutting down after summer 2024. Now, the operators of um, the Twilight Drive-In Theatre said that uh, they just can't afford to continue going on because of the never-ending tax hikes that are being passed on uh, to their uh, business. Now, it's important to note uh, it, the, the site that they're on is viewed as an industrial site uh, and you can't make any changes uh, on those uh, properties because it's a designation. The municipalities can't. So if it's an industrial price, industrial rate, it stays there. And each year as the property is worth more money, uh, the property taxes uh, go up with it. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward. Uh, he and his council uh, are working hard to save that drive through uh, in Langley. In fact, we believe that um, um, issue will be coming up at tonight's uh, Township Council meeting. Joining us now is Eric Woodward, the mayor of Langley Township. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, the Twilight Drive-In, um, you know, a long-time business uh, in your community, uh, well-loved and well-liked, and as we all know, uh, the type of business that just isn't around anymore, not many of them around uh, in North America. Uh, can this drive-in be saved? Well, we're still working on that and looking at some options for, for what might be. I mean, as you leaded, alluded to, it's one of only two drive-ins left in the province, and it's a pretty important economic driver for Alder Grove. So very interested in looking at the options to keep it open. Now, is this going to require a, a conversation with the province uh, or is there something fundamentally you can do? Because it, it looks like it's coming down to to some sort of zoning and, and taxation. Yeah, I think it'll be up to the Township of Langley and Council and staff here to, to address it. If, you know, if we ask for the province for help, they'll be long closed before anything can happen at that level. So I think for us, we'll, we'll be on it at the local level as soon as we can here, uh, discussing it even today. At, uh, today's council meeting. Uh, and walk me through a little bit about some of the challenges when it comes to industrial zone uh, 
policies at the, at the municipal and provincial level and where you think some changes need to be made? Yeah, the, the, the BC assessment system and uh, that leads to property taxation is very rigid. So we're at the local level, we're not allowed to have any flexibility to tax different properties at different rates based upon how they're being used. And this particular property is, is zoned industrial and it has gone up a lot in value over the last three to four years, gone from about 13 million to 38 million just in three to four years. And that's what's led to a 130% uh, regional and, and local tax increase on their property taxes. And so, you know, for us to have any flexibility to change that, yeah, the province would have to make changes. And we're not expecting that to happen anytime soon. Uh, so in this case, as you say, the property assessment went from 13 million to 38 million, which means the property tax in 29 was about 164,000 uh, in 2019, as I said, and it's now gone into, in, uh, to 378,000 per year. Uh, for 2023, mm-hmm. um, yeah. in this case, so would would you be if 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 it's a rigid rule, what can the uh, city do, the community do, in regards to reducing some of those costs? Well, we'd have to look at that. I mean, we're not probably going to get into a property tax exemption. I think we'll look at some other options on on seeing if the landlord will will work with the tenant, work with the township, or potentially try to find them an alternative location. Uh, where they won't run into this problem in the future. You know, they're they're on an industrial property, which, you know, is being shared. Um, you know, only a portion of it is the drive-in, and that's what's leading to this this rapid rise in their property tax rates. As there's significant demand for industrial property throughout the region. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to the broader issue of zoning beyond just industrial, are there other rules you think that are that need to be looked at or should have been looked at a long time ago? Well, UBCM, the uh, Union of British Columbia Municipalities, has been has been asking for flexibility around uh, our property tax system so that we could tax different property types at different rates, not just all industrial properties getting taxed the same or all residential properties getting taxed the same. And uh, some additional flexibility would really help in this regard. If the municipality could recognize that its use was not industrial, that it was more retail or entertainment, uh, we could potentially tax them appropriately. We don't have the flexibility to do that right now. We can only tax them as industrial, and it leads to these kinds of problems. And uh, we wish we had more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do other provinces do when it comes to the provincial government and their relationship with municipalities and taxation? You know, I'm going to say I just don't know. Uh, I have not looked into alternative taxation models through other provinces. I'm far too busy uh, running the Dodge of the Lagley. Yeah, no, I, I, and I totally understand that. Uh, you're bringing stuff up tonight. Uh, this is going to be a broad conversation, I'm assuming. Uh, but I guess time is of the essence. Do you, do you have a bit of a deadline here? We don't have an imminent deadline. They've, I met with them this week. I met with the owners, great people, small business family, you know, a big, big part of the community here. And they're going to operate it, it looks like, until the summer of 2024. So we have some time here to look at some different options. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go off, off topic just, just a little bit, just for a second. Sure. Uh, because we've been in the midst of this broader Surrey policing conversation. And since yeah. I got you on the show here, um, you've talked about this in the past in regards to you know, Surrey potentially receiving some dollars if they go with SPS, if the government decides to move forward with it. Um, would you like to see similar help in regards to policing or what would you like to see when it comes to policing in your community? Because, you know, some do prefer RCMP, some do prefer municipality, yeah. a municipal um, a police force. I'm just curious, what kind of help would you like to see as, as an elected official when it comes to policing? 
Well, I think we need to solve the chronic RCMP vacancy challenge that we have throughout the province. And I know the ministers referenced that. So the Township of Langley is committed to the RCMP. We're very happy with the RCMP. We just would like to have our own detachment separate from another municipality. We currently share it with another municipality. So for us, we want to, as we continue to grow, we want to have our own detachment. It's completely different than the debate in Surrey. Uh, we're very committed to the RCMP, and uh, we're not contemplating a civilian force at this time, and, and no one here is even, even debating or discussing that. Okay. Uh, Mayor Woodward, thank you so much for your time. Good luck, and I know you're meeting tonight on this issue, and we look forward to chatting with you very soon, and hopefully a solution for, for the uh, Twilight Drive-In as well. Thanks so much for your time. Well, we are. Yeah, and we also hope we, we all hope so too. It's a, it's a great regional destination, actually. Eighty percent of its customers are come from outside of Langley, so it's a regional amenity that we want to keep in the township. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.